0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Across the St. Louis metro, many businesses have now reopened. That's also the case for many restaurants. But the coronavirus is still here, and so being open doesn't mean being open to everything. Gerard Kraft is the James Beard award-winning chef behind the niche food group. His restaurants include Sardella, Pastoria, and Brasserie. He explained the new procedure being required at his restaurants to our producer, Evie Hempel.
1: When you come to our door, we ask that you have a mask on. So come in, and if you don't have a mask, we will provide you with a, with a disposable mask as well. Um, you are taken to a table. Your tables are all uh, in a minimum of six feet apart from any other table. All of our employees will be wearing masks. Um, you'll get a little little bag that has kind of uh, QR code for our menu so that you can kind of get on your phone and, and look up your menu. If you request, we can uh, give you a disposable menu. And once you're at your seat, you can take your mask off and enjoy your, you know, wine and food and have a, a great dinner feeling safe. Um, but we do ask that if you get up from your table to go to the bathroom or anything of that nature that you just put the mask back on. And we provide you with a little bag to keep your, keep your mask in while you're at your table. Um, It's really, you know, (laughs) it's funny, even as I'm saying it, I'm like, why is this so hard? (laughs) Like, this is not a big deal.
0: That's restaurateur Gerard Kraft of Niche Food Group. But while wearing a mask might not seem like a big deal, to some patrons, it is. Gerard Kraft explained.
1: This seems to be an issue everywhere. And it seems to me that, that masks have kind of become a political statement, which I think is kind of terrifying <laughs> because, uh, because they're so important. So our, our experiences really have just been that, you know, certain people just get angry about it. And, and it's kind of a weird, irrational anger, you know, because obviously they don't have to eat there. Um, they can go choose to eat somewhere else. Sometimes it's almost as if they want to get mad about it. Um, So it's almost as if they're coming in knowing that they're gonna have to wear a mask and then I just want to be angry and throw a temper tantrum, uh, which is, is kind of bizarre.
0: And that's Gerard Kraft of Niche Food Group. And it's not just his restaurants. St. Louis-based rideshare driver Bob L. is experiencing the same thing. He told us earlier this week what he's seeing as he drives for Uber.
2: I've had a few interactions, uh, mostly over this past weekend, um, with passengers who uh, seemed completely oblivious to the existence of COVID-19 and the precautions that many of us, are taking uh just for a little bit of background uber currently requires passengers and drivers to wear masks at all times whether all drivers are enforcing that or not i can't say but i'm guessing not all drivers are uh so you know it's been difficult uh especially when there's someone who doesn't have a mask with them um in those cases, I do have a few extra disposable masks that I keep on hand, uh, but you know that's that's not a, a long term solution for me um, i have I have lost a few rides, but honestly, I don't look at it as losing rides. I look at it as you know i'm not I'm not risking my own personal health uh, to make twenty bucks. Uh, driving someone from one bar to another.
0: And as rideshare driver Bob L. explained, being tasked with enforcing masks isn't
2: easy. The hardest part, I think, has probably been um, just explaining to passengers the concept of, you know, I wear my mask to protect you, you wear yours to protect me. Um, And for the most part, once I explain that, uh, they're fine with it. Um, but there are a few who, you know, maybe they're not, maybe they've been, they've had a few drinks, uh, and they get a little bit belligerent, but in those cases, um, you know, just end the trip or cancel the trip and move on to the next one and
0: that again is rideshare driver bob l now bob has made his piece moving on but what about us as a society that question has been weighing heavily on michael rosier of late father rosier is both a jesuit priest and an assistant professor of health management and policy at st louis university and he joins us today father rosier welcome to the show
3: Thank you for having me, Sarah, good to be with you.
0: Now you tossed off a tweet about this issue last week. You wrote, sadly, I'm becoming convinced that COVID is not far from taking on the characteristics of gun violence. The US will endure much higher persistent negative effects from something that other countries have solved. We'll normalize it and convince ourselves nothing can be done. What led you to that moment of seeming despair?
3: That is a great question. this is sometimes what happens on a random Thursday night when something pops into your head and you decide to make it a tweet and it has gone off to the races. Um, I, I think what motivated the tweet was um, kind of being out and about or talking uh, with people. And for the most part, um, uh, my friends and family are, uh, are very cognizant, aware of what's going on, but there seem to be um, a pretty sizable number of outliers in our community who are either um, you know, resistant to these new social norms that people have broadly accepted. Uh, and people are frustrated about how to deal with that reality.
0: Mm-hmm. So you put this tweet out there, as you say, it was just kind of in this this moment, you're feeling this. What kind of reaction did that tweet end up getting?
3: Uh, largely positive reactions. Um, I, I think it, it did resonate with people that, um, that people sensed, that this is going to be with us. Uh, the virus is going to be with us for the foreseeable future, and people really want to figure out how to live well during this time. But the the thing is that we can't live well all by ourselves. We we live in a community and a society, so we depend on each other mm. to live well. And. And and I think that's what resonated with people.
0: And you heard earlier, Gerard Kraft, the restaurateur, Bob L., the Uber driver, they really are getting pushback as they try to enforce these norms. What do you think needs to change in order for this situation to change?
3: Yeah, I, I would point to a couple things. Um, so in, in public health, you know, behavior change or creating new social norms is, is a whole area of study. Mm-hmm. And when we look at human behavior, we look at uh, the cognitive uh, factors of that. You know, Do people know what's going on? What's their attitude toward it? We look at kind of behavioral factors. Do people have the skills to do something well? And we also look at environmental factors, which would include, you know, access to the materials you need, but then also the social norms that we're talking about. And so in order to kind of um, move uh, the public perception on this, uh, you know, a couple of things come to mind. One, access for, uh, I, I think, for a long time, it might have been difficult to get masks or um You know, they might not be uh, fit well or be as stylish as people want. Hmm. Uh, I also think the kind of the social norms that having leaders, um, whether it be political or religious or business leaders uh, who fall uh, on the non-mask wearing side and kind of make it a a political point or something like that certainly doesn't help. Um, And I think it all might be a little exacerbated by media that really thrive on Uh, kind of division and discord. Because the bottom line is um, the majority of people believe that this is the way we need to proceed. And um, so it, it's a matter of kind of continuing to build momentum toward greater consensus.
0: It is interesting. It does seem to be becoming political, um, that maybe people who feel allied with one political party or watch, say, one particular uh, news channel on cable, that they are, are feeling like this is... Um, this is something that's baloney, and it's kind of become a talking point. Um, how do you deal with that when, you know, on the other hand, there's a lot of people in the media saying, you got to wear your mask, you got to wear your mask, but not everybody's listening to the same media or watching the same media?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, if, if, if I could solve that problem, I would be in charge of a whole lot more things, probably. <laughs> um, but, but but I th- I think a lot of it does come down to relationship. Um, so I think a lot of change happens at that individual level as well. I, as we heard, um, you know, an Uber driver kind of explaining why we do this thing for each other, um, or a restaurant tour explaining that no, this is this is to keep everybody safe. So you actually can enjoy your evening, because I I think ultimately what we're all kind of longing for and the the people who are resistant to it are longing for some sense of normalcy. And so um, what we need to, I think, try to collectively do is to figure out how can we do the things, you know, whether it be, you know, socializing or, um, you know, going out for a bite to eat or a drink, how can we do those things within this new normal? and, and, and I think that's kind of what motivated the tweet as well. Can, can we start putting our energy uh, into creative solutions for all of this stuff, rather than putting our energy into sowing division? Um, Because I I ultimately still am hopeful that we can can figure all of this out together.
0: You had pointed to gun violence as sort of the worst-case scenario. If this just becomes a normalized thing where we kind of give up on solving the problem, it it seems too intractable. Can you point to something where there's a social norm where public health has been able to change people's minds on and something that's no longer accepted that, that once was?
3: Yeah, I mean, I would say the most prominent example would be smoking. Um, it was not too long ago that, that the social norm was the exact opposite, that whether it be in airplanes or restaurants or in movies that you were watching, um, smoking was a, um, you know, uh, a broadly acceptable behavior. Uh, but through efforts of both changing the informal norms, but then kind of formal policy, uh, we have, I think, shifted uh, that social expectation. Now, the challenge, of course, with COVID is that we don't have decades to do this. Mm-hmm. We literally have uh, weeks to, um, to help shape this norm, which uh, is an admittedly much taller order than we have done in uh, other public health efforts.
0: Yeah, when you put it that way, it seems like time is just not on our side with this one. You know, uh, California and Texas, they're already seeing huge spikes. Are you worried it's too late?
3: i'm not um i i i do think it's going to take a more concerted effort Uh, but no i i don't think it's too late because you know the areas that we're seeing spikes in right now were the areas that didn't see that initial surge in the way that the new york or detroit areas saw early on so i i I think the lived experience um, of people actually makes a difference and so as we're thinking about kind of the building of social norms, we often point to you know, the frequency with which we see something or the consistency with which we see something. And so I think um, over time that, that is going to help. But it's also going to take uh, people in positions of authority Uh, modeling the kind of behavior that we all um, are asking of each other. Mm
0: -hmm. We're talking to Father Michael Rozier. He's a Jesuit priest as well as an assistant professor of health management and policy at St. Louis University. And we do want to invite you to join the conversation. What do you think is driving the animus against mask wearing and what will it take to change it? Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at STL publicradio.org. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
4: Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. ChooseWood.com.
0: And now back to our conversation, we're discussing the social norms of the pandemic with Michael Rozier. He's a Jesuit priest here in St. Louis. He's also an assistant professor of health management and policy at St. Louis University. I'm going to go to the phone lines here in just a moment, um, and I do want to invite you, if you're interested in this conversation and, and have some insight into why are people not wearing masks, what will it take to change that, you can give us a call, 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Uh, on the phones, uh, let's go to Cole. He's calling from Troy. Um, Cole, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air.
5: I appreciate you taking my call.
0: Yes, thank you for joining us. What's your perspective on this?
5: So I am, just to a little background, I'm politically very conservative, but this is 100% not a political issue. Um, I feel like conservatives more than people that are more progressive are turning it into a political issue, and I absolutely don't understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do know that there was mixed messages in the beginning on whether masks would be helpful or not, but I think, you know, by now we all know that it is certainly better to wear them as not to wear them, and I just don't understand why people I understand the frustration, the need, you know, and unpleasant and all that, but to actually not bother to wear them, I truly have struggled with them.
0: Cole, have you tried to persuade um, some of the conservatives that you're hearing this from to, to come around to your point of view? I'm curious if you've had any success.
5: Yeah, um, I'm a production worker. I actually uh, split time between Troy and Cape Girardeau. I work for a Fortune 500 company in production, and we have to wear them uh, all. You know, 12-hour shifts. We have to wear them the entire shift. And people are always whining and complaining about it, but when you really get down, if you can get them into a heartfelt conversation instead of just a reactionary conversation, you, you will be able to convince people that, it, yes, it just makes sense. It's a pain in the butt, but it makes sense.
0: Well, Cole, thank you for that. Uh, Father Roger, what do you think in light of Cole's experience here? It's, it's interesting that his one-on-one proselytizing does seem to be working.
3: Yeah, I think Cole makes some excellent points. Uh, first, the kind of early in the pandemic when we were worried about PPE for healthcare workers and um, the fact that we didn't know exactly how the virus was transmitted, that there were some mixed messages early on, which could lead to some confusion. confusion. Mm-hmm. And that idea that the personal relationship, the individual conversation is really the the kind of place of encounter. Um, yeah, I, I think both very good points. And, you know, the, the kind of general, I think... Um, Desire uh, politically on, on the conservative end is that you know that we not be limited in our actions and and a great way to kind of kind of frame this is that. W- that has some limitations itself that we, we, are, we are limited, but we have to prevent harm to other people. Mm-hmm. And so insofar as we can prevent harm to other people, um, that's, that's a reasonable ask, I think, of people in society.
0: Mm-hmm. I actually saw a study, this was by the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Um, their model suggests that mask wearing could save as many as 33,000 American lives over the course of this pandemic. It feels like if that model holds up, that's a, that's a statistic that can be somewhat persuasive.
3: Yeah, the um, I I just saw that uh, study as well, and um, some really good work coming out of the University of Washington on on that modeling, and and I think we can also look back. Actually, there, there's a study uh, in a journal called Health Affairs that was published yesterday uh, that basically showed in the natural experiment of where masks were mandatory and where they weren't, we can look back and see a pretty significant reduction in the transmission of the virus. So it's not just about kind of looking forward to seeing what can be done, but looking back on our policy experience and to say, actually, this has worked in other environments. Hmm.
0: Let's go back to the phone lines. Michael is calling from St. Louis. Uh, Michael, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air.
5: Hello, Um, one of the observations that I've made as I've kind of traveled you know, into St. Louis and out of St. Louis, into more rural areas, is that mask adherence seems to be politically, has become a political issue. And as you go into more conservative areas of the state, you can see the adherence dropping to zero. Um, And one of the things that baffles me is I am, I identify as conservative. The choice to wear a mask seems like something, you know, individual freedom and liberty that I would want to do if it has any measure of protection. And I don't understand the, the mindset in some areas that to avoid wearing what to me is basic safety equipment mm-hmm. or how basic safety equipment became such a politicalized issue.
0: Yeah, Michael, thank you for that thought. And I actually have heard from a number of listeners, some on Facebook, who noted that they see a big difference between the urban part of the state here in the city um, and then out in the outstate areas. Do you think that um, in addition to possibly the political things we're seeing here, that this is also an urban rural thing, that maybe people in smaller towns don't feel, um, you know, that there's more space between them in general and so this doesn't feel as necessary? Uh, Father Roger, I'm curious about your thoughts on that.
3: Yeah, I actually am from rural Missouri. I'm from St. Genevieve originally and still have a lot of family and friends there. Um, So I think a couple of things might be coming into play that um, the virus did hit harder in urban areas early on. Mm -hmm. Now we're seeing the rise in rural communities, and so that might kind of make a difference in terms of people's kind of social expectations of each other. Um, And I also think in in rural communities that there's a sense of knowing one another and that familiarity can can be a good thing most of the time. And uh, in this situation, it might be kind of uh, a challenging thing that we want to presume the best about people that we know. And therefore, oh, I haven't heard that so-and-so is, you know, positive in the way that you might not know when you go into a schnooks or somewhere like that uh, in an urban area and you don't know everybody. Hmm. And so I think there are probably a couple factors uh, beyond maybe the political ideology that are at play there.
0: That's, that's an interesting observation. I'm glad we have you here to, to speak to that, um, th- that background. That's not my own background. And so it's, it's always good to learn about others' experience and, and what you saw there. And Michael, I wanna thank you for that call. Let's go back to the phone lines. Um, Tammy is calling, I guess she's from uh, just outside St. Louis. Um, Tammy, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air.
6: Hello. Hi, thank you for joining us. I was just going to add to the conversation that I am 61 years old, and, you know, when that seatbelt law came out, I was frustrated. I was really angry, you know, that the government was going to, you know, step in and make a law, you know, where I had to wear a seatbelt, although it was for my safety and for my children's safety, and, um, of course, I wouldn't get in a car without one now, but... You know at the time it was really frustrating you know that they were wanting you to do something like that you know and i think that uh the the republican party in general i don't think that um they want the extra government control like you know wanting you to wear the the mask now i wear the mask wherever i go but i kind of uh am independent Mm -hmm. uh you know as far as uh uh you know, being a choice of Democrat or Republican, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I see the importance of it. I have uh, a cousin, and, uh, you know, she just adds, she's very adamant, I'm not wearing it, I'm not wearing it. But I think it's a combination of things, you know, that she's Republican, and, you know, she's very strong in her belief that, you know, extra government telling us what to do. You know? mm mm-hmm.
0: That's, uh, Tammy, yeah, I can absolutely see that that point, that several of these variables might be influencing people's politics on this. Father Roger, I'm wondering about the the change on seatbelts. That's a, it seems like a good example that back in the day, people maybe felt like the government was uh, getting inside their car with them, telling them what to do. But now it's it's certainly very accepted that we have to wear these. Do you see a parallel there?
3: I, I do, um, and 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 I think Tammy's comment brings up a, a really important uh, distinction between kind of informal social norms and formal public policy, and so that that's I think the the debate right now is I, I think we would all prefer less regulation or less kind of formal policy in our lives, and so. We we won't have to move to the place of formal policy if we can adopt kind of more informal social expectations that are that are broadly shared and and adhered to, and so you know the, the seatbelt obviously was that formal policy, um, and we have done that certainly in public health over different issues, but you know I I I would prefer, uh, and I think most people would prefer that. Um, rather than the kind of mandates and a heavy-handed policy if we can achieve it in an informal way that's certainly preferred but if we can't do it in an informal way then we're likely going to have to have some kind of imposition of a regulation or a policy to make um, this uh, this public health good achievable
0: Hmm. I want to go back to the phone lines Brandon is calling from Wildwood Um, Brandon hi you're on St. Louis on the air hey how are you thank you for joining us today what's your thoughts on this issue
5: so, I think one of the main problems that we're facing is that uh, a lot of people just solely get their news from social media now mm. and they're taking this information that's being shared by these uh, by these social influencers who don't have any regulation on what they what they post out so when they post these things, their fan base trusts them to tell them the truth and when they post this information about how masks are bad for them and you know how masks don't really help it it, it creates this spread of misinformation that's really hard to deal with, uh, where people just be become believers in this in this information that may or may not be
3: 100% accurate.
0: Brandon, I think that's a great point and, and thank you for that. Um, I want to go to Sam who's calling from Warrington. Um, Sam, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air.
7: Hello, how are you this afternoon?
0: Thanks for joining us. Uh, how are you feeling about masks?
7: Well, I moved from an urban to a rural area, so I talked to a lot of rural uh, folks around me, and it seems as if when when they decided, when Dr. Fauci decided to encourage mask wearing, it seemed like so many people around Troy, Missouri, and Warrington, Missouri would adhere to that. As soon as it became politically divisive, things changed and i and i've actually stopped a couple of people just to ask you know if if what the pro, you know why they aren't wearing masks and and not not in a, an aggressive manner but two of those were EMS workers with children at a local walmart and they said you know there are a lot of things out there that that are far worse than this so <laughs> i see it as a like an untouchable unseen kind of thing and with the divisiveness just in society right now, I, I see it being worn as a political statement or not worn, I should say.
0: Mm-hmm. Sam, that, that all does make sense. And, and thank you for sharing that perspective. Father Rozier, any thoughts on those those last two callers?
3: Yeah, so I think um, Sam makes a great point about the kind of the unseen reality of this. And we can see this going on in Texas and Florida right now. So the governors just today announced that they are shutting down bars, they're rolling back restaurant capacity. Um, And unfortunately, with this virus, there's a several week lag um, until we see the effects of our behaviors. And so there is this kind of um, uh, unfortunate reality that we don't see the negative effects of our behaviors until it's almost too late, uh, which is why it's so important uh, even if we don't see Um, the kind of um, hospitalizations and and mortality rates, that we still kind of stay consistent with these behaviors because it'll prevent those things from happening uh, in our communities.
0: Now, earlier in the show, um, we played some audio from Gerard Kraft, who's a a pretty big deal restaurateur here in town. And when he talked to our producer, Evie Hemphill, um, he explained that, you know, everybody says, what can we do to help restaurants during this time? He said, if people don't follow these norms, this is what's going to kill restaurants that all these restaurants are are teetering on the brink right now, and this is, you know, there's a simple economic argument here that people need to do this just to help their favorite eatery stay in business. Do you think we'd be more successful framing the argument in terms of economics as opposed to trying to rely on people's altruism? Father Rozier, any thoughts on that? Oh, I okay we may have we may have lost our guest here i'm so sad i was i was definitely enjoying the conversation with him and i think we might have had a a technical difficulty um i'm going to take one last call and then we're going to need to move to our next segment um derek is calling from st louis derek hi you're on st louis on the air
4: hi uh thank you for taking my call i appreciate it
0: yes thanks for Um, joining us
4: absolutely um, I also come from a very conservative family, although me myself, I'm a little bit more liberal. And one of the things that we hear a lot in, in conversations with my family is about uh, not wanting our rights infringed upon, uh, being able to have all of our rights. And um, for me, where the, a lot of this comes from is basic misunderstanding what our rights are. Um, as private businesses, um, it's their private property. They have the right to require whatever standards or regulations, um, that they want. And I've witnessed so much of not just my family, but people at stores, um, wanting to, you know, fight that because they believe it's a rights infringement, which it is not. Um, private property and um, privately owned property can require Whatever rules they decide for their business, and I think a lot of this just goes down to the basic American public misunderstanding what their rights are that are given in the Constitution, and I think that's where we get into a lot of trouble. And then it becomes more of a political issue where we feel like we're standing for rights that we technically don't have as private citizens once we enter public property. I mean, private property.
0: I think I think you make a lot of good points there, Derek, and and thank you so much for that analysis, Um, Father Roger. I understand you are now back.
3: I am. I'm sorry about that. I don't know what happened.
0: Oh, it, trust me. It happens all the time. This is what happens when we have to rely on phone lines and can't have people in studio. But this is our new social norm here. So we have to follow <laughs> through. On it. I did have one last thing I wanted to share with you. And this one came in through Facebook. And Mary is responding to your tweet. And she says, I love this show. Well, thank you for that, Mary. Uh, she says, I disagree, however, that people have given up on gun violence. Moms demand action for gun sense in America is alive and active in many parts of Missouri. We have at least 17 active groups in the major cities, but also Joplin, Cape Girardeau, Maryville, Central Missouri, etc. She adds, we supported cure violence in St. Louis and interact with legislators and candidates regularly to impact our state's gun laws. Father Rozier, is there maybe a bit more optimism in the long run, um, knowing people haven't given up on these issues gun violence is even still on the table?
3: Absolutely. I, I think that's an excellent point. And, um, you know, some When when you try to put together analogy, there's always going to be some misalignment, and I think she's pointed out a great one, Um, and that's also why I haven't given up hope on um, our response to COVID. Like I I still have, um, you know, the the hope that we can figure out these new social norms and figure out how to live this really well uh, until we do have the fortune of having a vaccine or really effective therapeutic treatment.
0: Well, I hope your faith in all of us is warranted. Um, And I've really enjoyed having this conversation with you today. So Father Michael Rozier, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. And uh, Father Rozier is a a Jesuit here in St. Louis, and he's also uh, part of the faculty at St. Louis University. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
4: Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association.